Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by Teague, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance stands for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website. There'll be a link in the show notes below. Please check them out. They've got a lot of good information, what they're doing, and they are working really hard to support American energy independence, and I hope you will check them out. Sign up for the newsletter. Check out some of their their opinion pieces and what they're doing in the energy community to try and help out with things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get into it. And I think tonight I uh, just grabbed whatever we had here at the office. I think it's um, I think it's some Nantucket blend. So that's good. That's what we got going on. Mmm. Tasty. Nice and bitter, like a jazz musician at 3 a.m. Okay, so a little bit of housekeeping here. Uh, first off, this very morning, before I um, finished my show notes and came up here to record, I actually got two comments Um one of them was to me, uh, sent to me on LinkedIn by Brendan, and he officially declared himself my 13th subscriber. I want to thank you so much. Lucky number 13, you're the man. That is, from now on, we will officially refer to this podcast as having at least 13 subscribers. Uh, so thank you so much for that, and I'm very, very glad that you um, sent me that and you're enjoying the show, and I hope you continue to do so. I also got an email from Cameron who uh, was enjoying the China episode. Very much appreciated. I, I do hope you'll um, continue to enjoy these, and it'll be worth your while. So thank you so much for the uh, kind comments. I very much appreciate it. All right. So uh, as I had mentioned before, my plan a while back was to do this scandal sort of sub-series. Um, you know, on, originally I wanted to do like 10 scandals, the top 10 scandals, but I really, when I started getting into it, I couldn't stop myself from doing all the research and really digging up some like massive stuff and I couldn't condense it down. And so my plan then was to do like two or three of them, uh, over the course of a couple episodes. And now these are, these are all just so big. I, I don't know how many episodes it's going to be, but we're not just going to be straight scandals from now until forever. We are going to do a couple scandal episodes here and there, and then I'll, you know, hit whatever the political hot button topic is that pops up over the next couple of weeks and, you know, pepper in a few of these scandal episodes here and there. But it is a fun little thing we'll be doing as sort of a side series here. So when I mentioned that I was doing this initially a couple of weeks ago, I teased it on the podcast and I, I mentioned it to some of my colleagues at OGGN. And no less than six people, listeners uh, and colleagues, all ask the exact same question. Are you going to do one on Enron? And, you know, uh, listen, since we're all friends here, I'll just answer it like I would with a friend. Yeah, it's fucking Enron. How can you not? Um, Now, my plan wasn't to hit Enron early on, but it's been asked for by multiple people at this point. So we are going to tackle that tonight. And, And it's kind of interesting to me because Enron is something that I I it's happened in my lifetime. It's something I know about. Teapot Dome was 100 years ago. The odds are there's nobody that was alive back then that was even old enough to be involved or know about it. And more than likely, if there are, they probably aren't listening to this podcast. So there's that. But Enron, I know people that were affected by that. I know people that lost money in that. I've worked with people that work there. And hell, there's a really good chance that some of you folks listening to this episode 
either lost money in Enron or worked at Enron. Now, there's also going to be a large segment of you, I suspect, who are kind of like me and they're a little young to have really understood what the full impact of Enron was when it happened. I mean, I was in high school when Enron happened, and I knew it was a big bankruptcy, but okay, so what? Who gives a shit? Probably 15 companies have gone bankrupt in the three minutes I've been recording so far. So what difference does it make? But the story behind this thing is pretty wild, and uh, we're going to tackle that tonight. And as always, uh, I like to start off with the traditional history homily. So Enron came about from a merger of two companies, InterNorth Incorporated, which was founded in 1931 and based in Omaha, Nebraska, and Houston Natural Gas Corporation was founded in 1940. Now, in 1976, Houston Houston Natural Gas began uh, an attempt to diversify their operations into other industries that weren't necessarily... uh, in the energy sector. And this necessarily was not a terribly successful venture, but it is relevant because they accrued a fair amount of debt during the time they were trying to diversify their portfolio. And that debt will come in useful. Also, fun drinking game, take a shot every time I say debt. Um, Having hospital notified beforehand, but if you want to really, really do some damage, that's, that's the game to play on this episode. So, they accumulated a fair amount of debt by starting in 1976, but overall, just a thing to note. By 1979, InterNorth was operating the largest natural gas pipeline in North America. And by the time we start dawning into the 1980s, corporate rating was in full swing. Uh, Gordon Gecko-type characters like T. Boone Pickens, Carl Icahn, um, Sir James Goldsmith, they were going around and doing hostile takeovers of companies, and then asset stripping them, i.e. raiding the pension funds, selling off individual assets at a higher price. That way they could effectively break the company up and sell all the pieces of it for more than they would have gotten for the whole company if they put it on the market, things like that. It was a huge, huge deal in the 1980s. Corporate raiders were just bouncing from one company to the next, doing leverage buyouts, and then gutting them in order to make themselves wealthy. Now, regulations and laws have made that a little less of a thing these days, but back then it was a huge issue. Um, And again, just watch the movie Wall Street if you want to get kind of a good idea what that looks like. So, corporate rating, big, big problem. In 1984, Houston Natural Gas fended off a hostile takeover by Coastal Corporation. Now, that fending off of a hostile takeover was successful. They did not get acquired by Coastal. But in the process, their CEO was let go, and they had to go hire a new one. The CEO they hired was the president and chief operating officer of Transico. Now, this is important because that COO that they hired to be their CEO is Ken Lay, who will be a big, hairy deal in this story moving forward. Ken Lay is now the CEO of Houston Natural Gas. And he was hired because he was purportedly quite good and had several ideas on how to avoid hostile takeovers, which was a big threat in the industry at the time. And let's face it, Houston Natural Gas was trying to stay independent and not get gobbled up and torn apart by some of these corporate raiders. By 1985, InterNorth was increasingly also becoming the target of hostile takeovers as well. Uh, Ken Lay reached out to them. They were two pipeline companies. They were in the same business. Houston had the East-West Pipeline's Uh, InterNorth had the North-South pipelines, and it seemed like a really good merger. Now, Houston Natural Gas had considerably more debt on their books from these failed attempts to expand their business and other portfolios, but both of them were still viable going concerns. So Ken Lay approaches InterNorth and suggests that perhaps they do some sort of a friendly merger, which would enable both companies to continue on relatively independently. Uh, InterNorth was going to be the surviving company with a few of the Houston natural gas executives finding uh, seats in the upper management of the company, but by and large, it would be InterNorth's business to run. For InterNorth, this was an attractive offer for all of those reasons, plus with the additional debt that Houston natural gas was carrying, Houston natural gas was effectively was considered a quote-unquote poison pill acquisition, i.e., by acquiring Houston natural gas and all their debt, they were a less attractive attractive target for a corporate raider because 
if they came in and bought it, they'd still have to deal with this debt. They'd have to pay more to get it, and it, it made it a less attractive purchase. So Houston natural gas was something of a poison pill. Well, initially, Internorth was the surviving company. The problem was it was a really nasty merger as far as mergers go. Um, a lot of the executives at Internorth did not like the executives at uh, at Houston Natural Gas, there was a very big cultural divide, and there was a lot of animosity over the fact that even though they acquired Houston Natural Gas, some of these people were given leadership roles. Ken Lay was COO of the company, and they felt like he shouldn't be given the second chair because his company was bought. They thought he should have been let go. Uh, there was some work on coming up with a new name for the company, which ultimately, after a few iterations, became Enron, and the Members of the company from the inner north side of the house hated it so much that they refused to use Enron letterhead or Enron stationery or even address the company as Enron in dialogue with clients, customers, or internally. It was a really nasty situation. There's just a lot of animosity, so much so that by the board meeting in early 1985, right after the merger happened or not long after the merger happened, um, the CEO from Inner North, who had taken over as the CEO of Enron, uh, the merged entity, basically decided that he was done. And as soon as the board session opened up, he just up and quit and walked out. The first order of business after they had declared the board meeting open was he resigned effective immediately and walked the fuck out. Just done. The board was in shock and awe, didn't know what to do, and so in the moment, they made Kinlay the CEO of Enron, which would be probably one of ultimately the worst decisions that board ever made. Not that any of them would ever face any real consequences, or most of them. Um, they'd all change over down the road. But at any rate, that was a momentous decision that was made kind of in a snap second because they didn't have anybody else to take over. Now, Kinlay had a bit of a hard situation to deal with. He had an extremely hostile set of senior executives who did not like him, especially now that he was CEO and he came from the Houston natural gas side rather than the inner north side. He had a board of directors that openly indicated that they didn't think he was going to make it and were just looking for there to be some sort of a misstep that they could send him on his way uh, once they found a better option. And at the time, Enron was doing fine, but it wasn't doing amazing. Now, Ken had decided that the deregulation happening in the energy market through the 1980s was where Enron was going to make its money. That's where they're going to compare or compete. The problem is, as much as he liked this idea, in practice, Enron actually did a really shitty job competing on the open market. Most of their competitors were beating them on prices, beating them on services, um, contract bids, everything. I mean, they were just kind of losing left, right, and center. And while they were doing fine, they weren't doing really all that well either. They still had a lot of this legacy debt they were carrying around, and they were struggling. They made a few bids on pipelines that didn't go especially well, and they were just kind of incrementally winding their way down. There was a lot of consideration that it, the company may not be able to, to make it much longer. Hell, even their credit was rated as junk by the credit rating firms. So Ken Lay was struggling to avoid a mutiny from his former Internorth executives, as well as being fired from the board of directors. And between 1986 and 1987, with all their considerable debt, the only thing keeping Enron afloat was a small division out of Valhalla, New York, called EOT, the Enron Oil Trading Offices. Basically, it was an office that had opened not long before the merger on the inner north side, and they were a division that did something that was very new and very in vogue. They traded company money on derivatives in energy, specifically in this case, oil. And Basically, to put that in really simple terms, they were betting whether oil was going to go up or down, and they were using company money to make these, these calls or these puts, and if they called it the right way, the company would make a lot of money. If they called it the wrong way, the company would lose money. Most companies have some sort of an investment strategy. This is not terribly uncommon today, although at the time, even then, there were certain risk um, thresholds that these traders were required to operate within. Now, the interesting thing is, is that all around Enron, most of their lines of business were effectively losing money or at very best breaking even, but they certainly were not what you would consider profitable. The only division of the company at the time that was really making money was the Enron oil trading offices. 
Now, this would come back to bite them in the ass as it was technically the first scandal in this ordeal, but they were the ones keeping the lights on. They were the ones keeping payroll running. I mean, it was kind of up to these guys up there in Valhalla. Um, Several of the executives at Enron's top level started complaining that the EOT was probably doing something illegal for the amount of money they were making, but Ken Lay did not want to hear it. He accused his executives of being jealous and telling them that they thought they could do a better job, then maybe they should get their departments to make that kind of money too. Well, the situation got a little bit worse when an anonymous tip came from an employee indicating there was real propriety at the Valhalla offices, and again, Ken dismissed it. This person even claimed that there should be some sort of an audit done because they believed that the executives at the Valhalla office were actually siphoning off millions of dollars to personal accounts. This obviously caused a lot of alarm at the executive level at Enron, but Ken dismissed it again, insisting that this was nonsense. He even sent a telegram uh, or a telex to the Valhalla office stating, I've defended you. Please just keep making us millions. Now, that didn't come out in the investigation until much later on, but clearly... He either knew what they were doing was wrong, or he had really good reason to suspect there was bad stuff happening and just didn't care to know the details as long as they kept the money coming in that kept the rest of the company afloat. At any rate, a couple of months later, it all came crashing down. It was discovered finally after uh, some documents were leaked to the SEC, and the SEC started asking some very general inquiry-type questions about the operations of the EOT that Ken was forced to launch an investigation. And the investigation was not great. So first off, it was discovered that, yes, the two head executives of the Valhalla office had siphoned off $6 million into personal bank accounts right off the top. Secondly, these guys had actually managed to spend or bet way over the company's actual trading threshold for risk. They were only authorized to risk up to something like $80 million, and by the point the investigation was launched, they had a billion dollars of commercial paper out that they were betting on, which had gone the wrong way and was threatening to bankrupt the company. In fact, the company at the time was only worth around $450 million, and they had a billion dollars that they had bet the wrong direction on a trade, which would have bankrupt the company overnight. The situation was absolutely dire. Enron was basically just about to fall off the cliff. Well, one of the executives that he sent up there to deal with this took a gamble and doubled down on on a bluff on the direction that oil was going to go, and in an absolute Hail Mary of either doubling the amount of money they were about to lose or getting out of the hole, they pulled through. Their losses went from a potential $1 billion to a mere $150 million, which $150 million loss was terrible. That was a lot, and very nearly itself sent the company into receivership, which they barely managed to get by. But they did. Of course... This um, caused them to liquidate their position in any assets and stocks. They did a last-minute fire sale, shut down the Valhalla office. Ken Lay, of course, exclaimed to the uh, SEC and anybody else who would listen that he had no knowledge of what these rogue traders and executives were doing, and that moving forward, Enron would have the strongest internal controls of any company of any industry in the world, which is a bold claim considering how history would later turn out. So... An interesting bit of irony is that the U.S. Assistant Attorney General who actually worked on prosecuting these rogue traders in the Valhalla office was a young James Comey, who would later go on to be the FBI director who or was embroiled in his own scandal when he launched an 11th-hour investigation into the infamous Hillary Clinton email server in the late stages of the 2016 presidential election. Now, The question is, was Ken Lay crooked or clueless? Well, it doesn't really matter because at any rate, due to a combination of dumb luck and a callous and indifferent universe, Enron survived to go Ponzi scheme another day. Sure, the rogue executives were fired and carted off to jail, the Valhalla office was closed, and Ken Lay put into a policy that Enron would never again play the stock market. But he still needed to find a new way to make money, and he was still facing some very tough uh, 
issues with his board and with his executives. In fact, it was flat out told to him that one more scandal and he was gone. Well, that being said, in uh, understanding this was done in 1987, Kinlay hired McKinsey & Company to consult with his company and figure out how they can come up with a plan to move Enron forward profitably. McKinsey & Company sent consultant Jeff Skilling to help them figure things out. Now, uh, by April of 1988, CEO Ken Lay called what would later be referred to as the Enron Come to Jesus meeting, where he outlined a plan to transform Enron from a predominantly pipeline-based company to a market-making company that was going to revolutionize the energy sector while expanding their pipeline business via new deregulation organically. Jeff Skilling crafted what was going to be the Enron Gas Bank, which was going to be an absolute moneymaker for him, and it was. So... A year later, 1989, the Enron Gas Bank opens up. Effectively, it acts as an intermediary. It would have Enron guarantee the prices of gas to its customers uh, at a fixed price over a fixed period of time, ensuring the price would be stable. They would then guarantee a sell price from the producers at a fixed rate over a fixed period of time, ensuring that they could keep the proceeds. The the sellers of the gas were generally okay with this because at this time there was a huge amount of volatility in the gas market and the purchasers were certainly happy because it meant that they had a guaranteed way that they could budget what their gas prices were going to be and Enron would carve a bit off the top. It was a hedging type arrangement that was fairly common in the uh, broader stock market and hedge fund world, but it was something that had never been done with the commodity and oil and gas side of the house. It was in a way, somewhat revolutionary. Uh, Jeff Skelling, who was, you know, a something of a uh, aficionado of the stock market, came up with this plan and basically just took it from overall stock and tried to apply it to the gas sector here, and it worked really well. It opened up in 1989, and things were going swimmingly. Eventually, Enron would try and expand this out to a number of other different uh, businesses, but but for the time being, it was really good. In 1990. Kinlay hired Skilling from McKinsey and Company and put him in charge of his baby, the Enron Gas Bank, which at this point was handedly the money-making golden goose of the company. Now, eventually, as rates continued to have volatility and sometimes deals were incorrectly arranged, they needed a way to keep the rates competitive and also offset their losses. Skilling started the process of betting on gas derivatives which ironically was the same sort of gambling that got Enron into trouble only a handful of years earlier, and they swore they would never do, but Skilling had been right about the gas bank. So Ken Lay presumably trusted him and said, yeah, by all means, go and gamble on the stock market, and we'll make up the difference there. And that seemed fine. <clears throat> Skilling, on the other hand, needed somebody who understood the extremely complicated ins and outs of uh, accounting for stock and derivatives types trading. And so he leaned on Andrew Fasto to help him handle the finances for the gas bank, which were admittedly complicated. Fasto had what seemed like a proven track record since he came from the Continental Illinois Bank in Chicago as an investment banker and seemed like a logical choice. So he was brought on. Now, by the early 90s, Enron went from a troubled little pipeline company uh, to a financial juggernaut. Skilling even managed to get the SEC to authorize Enron to use mark-to-market accounting on the advice of Fastlow, which proved to be a major win. Now, not to go too much into an accounting nerd rabbit hole here, but to put it in a really simple nutshell, mark-to-market accounting enables you to say, um, this is what the overall revenue of a thing will be, Today, we count all of the revenue for the entire life cycle of the, the deal. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I close a, a deal to sell $100 million of gas to this client over the next 10 years. Well, with mark-to-market accounting, I could count that as a $100 million sell today for this quarter, for this month, even though no money has been exchanged. And in fact, for the total value of the deal to be received, this thing has to last all the way through those 10 years. Instead, we count all of that revenue instantly. The reason Skilling and Fasto wanted this type of accounting is because it enabled them to solve a problem, and that was to raise the stock prices really, really quickly. Now, all of these 10- and 20-year-long deals the gas bank were closing were giant, multi-million, multi-tens-of-million-dollar deals that they got to count on the balance sheet instantly and show that they had gargantuan, massive growth. They were growing 
20, 30, 40, 50% a year, year after year after year, which looked astonishing. And of course, it's all due to the magic of mark-to-market accounting. Now, mark-to-market is a double-edged lever because the same thing with losses, right? If you take a loss, you're supposed to technically report the entirety of the loss on that date as well. But they didn't want that, and we'll get to that in a minute. So, the issue with the losses is that any money they were tossing into projects, they had to theoretically recognize all of the potential liabilities at once as well. And this was proving a bit of a problem. It was going to make the balance sheet look like shit. In 1992, Fasto and Skilling started a creative solution to the issue. They created the first special purpose entities, or SPEs, which, by the way, from now on, I'm just going to start referring to as my significant others. If you're if anyone who's my significant other, from now on, I'm going to start calling you my special purpose entity. I think that's brilliant, and I think you should use that too. Anyway, legally speaking, a special purpose entity is a type of limited liability company where all the debt uh, would be transferred to. The company was backed by Enron stock, and then they would transfer all of their debt to it. So liabilities and debt from these projects or from bonds they put out or whatever, they would move it off the balance sheet into one of these special purpose entities that didn't roll up into the overall Enron balance sheet because it was treated like a totally separate entity, even though it was entirely backed by Enron stock. But they would keep all the revenue and the proceeds from legitimate sales as well as all of their mark-to-marketing magic sales on the main balance sheet that was reported to the SEC and the market overall. Um, To give you an idea of just how gratuitous the situation got out of hand, by the time Enron collapsed, they had created over 3,000 special purpose entities, and the majority of them were levered 93 to 1 with debt. That is a metric fuckton of off-books debt, just so we're clear. But we'll get there. So, by 1991, Enron starts uh, getting into the newly regulated, uh, deregulated retail energy market. By 1997, Lay, Skilling, and Farsto probably thought, yeah, lads, we've got this commodity lark in the bag, right? And so they start deciding to go into other more abstract businesses like broadband internet and hedging weather predictions because fuck it, why not? By the late 90s, Enron stocks were soaring. The company was posting record quarter after record quarter and attracting the best and brightest talent and paying them a king's ransom to work there. From a cultural standpoint, Enron didn't even look like an oil and gas company. I mean, their offices were super modern. They didn't have lots of big, heavy wooden desks. It was all metal, clean lines, glass. It was sexy. It looked like they were working on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Their people came into work looking more like they belonged in Cupertino. They were wearing jeans and a polo or khakis and a polo. You don't wear that if you work in oil and gas. You wear a suit when you go to work in the 80s and the 90s in oil and gas. Not this polo shit. It was outrageous. But they were making money nonstop. In 1997, Skilling was promoted to the COO and fast out to the CFO because, after all, they were clearly brilliant. They rubbed coins together and produced $100 bills. Enron was winning mountains of awards for most innovative company, best place to work. And, in fact, it was the seventh largest company in the United States. Hell, even Ken Lay, who a decade earlier was being nearly kicked out of his company by a board revolt or pissed off executives, was now being lauded as one of the most talented CEOs of his generation on the same level as a Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Jack Walsh of GE. I mean, it was incredible. In 2000, for example, they had the Blockbuster deal. The idea was had to invest in broadband money, something they'd already been working on and losing money on, but you wouldn't know that because they funneled it off to special purpose entities. But the idea was to invest with Blockbuster in an internet-based streaming service that would replace DVD and video rentals. It was revolutionary, and eventually Netflix would beat them to that punch. But at the time, it was Enron and Blockbuster. They signed a deal where they anticipated a 20 to $30 million investment in Blockbuster for the technology, and, and what they had predicted was that it would be worth about $100 million of revenue. And so they booked all $100 million of revenue for that month and that quarter, naturally, uh, even though 
They actually never got a single dime of money because the deal, uh, the technology wasn't there and it fell apart. But they booked all $100 million of the revenue, and they siphoned off the money they used for the investment into a special purpose entity. And of course, from a balance sheet standpoint, it looked brilliant at the time. Then there was the California energy crisis of 2000 to 2001. The deregulation, not to mention the fact that Enron had hugely deep connections with the political elite, ensured that they could do pretty much whatever the hell they wanted. At this point, Enron had bought several of the different local utilities as well as several different power plants in California and pretty much had a stranglehold on California power and electricity. To put it in very short terms, what they did was they arranged their own energy interruptions. They would call a factory, tell it to shut down, causing a run on electricity, and then they would jack the prices up to two or $300 and year $2,000 per kilowatt hour, which was absolutely outrageous. The state went through massive rolling blackouts for months and months at a time with hundreds of thousands of people without electricity for prolonged periods of time. It was absolutely outrageous. The governor of California had received considerable donations to his campaign from Enron and was basically unable or unwilling to do anything. And even when it was brought to a federal level, President Bush defended Enron. And why wouldn't he? I mean, hell, for President Bush's presidential election, his dad, the former president, was flown to Washington on the Enron executive jet as a gift to the Bush family. That's quite a bit of pull. At any rate, Skilling at a company town hall even joked, what's the difference between California and the Titanic? When the Titanic went down, the lights were on. And of course, all the employees laughed. When Frontline interviewed Skilling about the outrageous prices that California residents were getting paid and for all the power outages, Skilling said, and I quote, we're the good guys. We're on the side of the angels. Bold play. Meanwhile, the money was flowing into Enron like wine at a Roman orgy. In 1998, the top 200 employees in Enron were all making an average of $1 million apiece. Three years later, by 2001, the top 200 employees were all making an average of $7 million a year apiece. That's insane. But regardless of what the balance sheet said, most of the money was coming from massive amounts of loans from banks and other financial institutions, which would be put on the books of a SPE uh, or from issuing corporate bonds and commercial paper. Uh, they would issue out the bonds or get the loan. They would transfer it to Enron's main books and mark it as a sale, and then they would take the liability and debts and make sure to shuffle it off to a new SPE, which would be getting the loans backed by Enron stock to ensure there are no issues. It was a vicious cycle, and the problem was they'd gone so far along now that if they attempted to stop, the entire house of cards might collapse. Meanwhile, like all publicly traded companies, Enron had to pass audits. Now, the firm they hired for this purpose was one of the big five. Now, these days, you only hear about the big four accounting firms. And, well, I'm sure you can figure out why that is, but let's get into that. Arthur Anderson was hired to handle the auditing and consulting work for Enron. And to give you an idea of the size of client, while technically Enron was not Arthur Anderson's largest client, I do believe it was either the second or third largest client, making up a significant and double-digit percentage of their uh, revenue. Enron paid $2 million a week in consulting and auditing fees to Arthur Anderson. That's a lot of money. And considering the fact the name recognition of Enron, Arthur Anderson marketed that they handled Enron's uh, consulting and and auditing services and use that to acquire other business help. Just on the back of having Enron as a client, by the time this all went down, Arthur Anderson had 80% of the public U.S. oil and gas companies using them for audit services. I mean, talk about a ripple effect. Now, at one point, or perhaps several points, accounts at Arthur Anderson doing the audits did start to question the use of SPEs and tax write-off and tax credits and and brought it to the attention of both partners internally and to the management of uh, Enron. The moment this was brought up, Enron threatened to have PricewaterhouseCooper or Ernest & Young take over the business, and the partners at Arthur Anderson were absolutely apoplectic at the idea of losing one of their largest clients and quickly told their auditors to shut the fuck up and color and find creative solutions to make these okay. And they did. 
But by late 2000, we're getting to the beginning of the end of this little drama. You see, things started to unravel, coincidentally enough, when the Texas Journal did a story on the dangers of mark-to-market accounting, which they noted was becoming increasingly prevalent in the energy sector after Enron had adopted it a decade earlier. Short-seller expert Jim Chanos happened to pick up a copy of the Texas Journal while he was waiting at a doctor's office and thumbed through it, catching the article and and reading it. And he was someone who had done a number of investments with Enron stock in his career. And once he read it, it got him to thinking. So he ended up pulling the 10K report for Enron and looking at himself. But it it didn't make any sense. And this is a guy who made his career looking and betting on different plays in the stock market and looking at financials. And the more he dug at the Enron financials, the more it just didn't track. He asked a few of his friends who were finance professors to look at it. That didn't really work. So then he took it to a friend, Bethany McLean. She was a reporter and she worked for uh, the Fortune magazine, and she started looking into it. She started digging, but she couldn't figure it out either. I mean, at this point, Enron's stock was sitting at a high of $90 per share, but their debt was just vanishing. Profits were through the roof, but it wasn't clear how much, if any, actual cash the company had on hand. Well, in February of 2001, Ken Lay decided that he was going to stand down as the CEO, and he was going to move to a position of just being the chairman of the board. He promoted Jeff Skilling to be the CEO of Enron. Now, did Kinlay know or suspect the end times were coming? I don't necessarily think that he did, but the timing wasn't great. So, February 2001, Jeff Skilling is named the new CEO. He's already been there for over a decade making the magic happen and orchestrating this entire thing, hand-in-hand with both Fasto and Lay. That being said, only a month into his reign, in March 2001, Bethany writes and publishes the now infamous article in Fortune magazine entitled, Is Enron Overpriced? Well, this was an absolute debacle. This was the first time that anyone had ever publicly, in print, dared question whether or not Enron was anything other than the absolute darling of Wall Street. You don't question Enron. Enron questions you. And the problem is, this was a publication that, unlike the Texas Journal, was widely seen by a lot of people. Executives at Merrill Lynch and at Citibank, who had both issued out massive amounts of loan to Enron, massive amounts of loans to Enron over the years, as well as having large holdings in Enron bonds and stock, those executives saw this, this, this article. They read it. It got them to thinking. How much money do we actually see coming from Enron for the amount of loans that we're issuing out? That got them to dig a little bit deeper, and they realized that there were a lot of small little LLC-type entities that were ultimately tied back to Enron, but they were all under different account manager, account managers, and they all had huge amounts of debt. But no one had ever really put it together at these banks that they were part of Enron because different account managers managed all these different SPE accounts, and it was never made very clear. Now the banks started to get worried because if what they were seeing was true, Enron had a lot of debt on their hands, but surely not. They arrange a meeting with the CFO, Arthur Fasto, and they start trying to get to the bottom of it. Fasto absolutely loses his mind when he's questioned on this. He threatens to pull out all business away from these banks unless they give him the loans they need. And if they don't, He'll never do work with them again. He'll ensure that Enron completely blacklists these banks. Well, they're terrified. That's a lot of business. And they've already invested a lot of money in the success of of this company. So they relent, and they give them the loan that they need. But the problem is people on Wall Street and across the industry are starting to ask questions. Skilling has a phone call with Bethany McLean and basically tells her she's an unethical bitch for daring to question the integrity of his company and its business practices. And if she didn't understand how they were making money, it's because she was too fucking stupid to understand it. That's why. Paraphrasing a bit, but that was effectively the tenor of it. At any rate, the following month in April of 2001, Skilling is interviewed by the Wall Street analyst Richard Grubman, who asked a very pointed question, quote, The more we ask around, the more everyone realizes 
that no one knows how you make money at Enron. You're the only Fortune 500 company that can't provide a balance sheet that matches its earnings statements. Skilling loses his mind. He starts stammering, and this is a recorded interview, and goes, well, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, asshole, and storms out of the interview. Now, at Enron, these comments were laughed off by everyone. Hell, the employees all got T-shirts that said, thank you, asshole, and wore them as a joke. But in the rest of the industry, this was shocking. No one ever sees a CEO just completely blow their lid in an interview like that. What would possibly cause that to happen? Was Skilling unhinged? Was there actually truth to these problems? Was Enron overvalued? The murmurs start to go stronger. His comments caused astonishment by the press and by the public. And with pressure mounting, Skilling could tell the music was starting to come to a stop. Starting in April and through August, he began selling his shares of Enron stock, 450,000 shares for a total of $33 million. Then, in August of 2001, he abruptly resigns as CEO, citing personal reasons. The industry was shook. Skilling had only been CEO for six months, and when questions about Enron's financials came up, he jumped ship. It didn't look good. Kinlay has to reassume the title of CEO, and he assures everyone that Enron is in the strongest position it's ever possibly been in. How could it not be? But later on in August, Sharon Watkins, VP of Corporate Development, sends a letter to Lay warning him that the company's accounting practices were completely improper. Lay gets extremely pissed off and wants her fired, but he's talked out of it by in-house counsel who suggests that, one, if he fires her, there's a good chance she'll file a wrongful termination lawsuit, and secondly, were such a lawsuit to be filed, the company's financials would absolutely be brought up in a very public light, and it might be that nobody wants that. Lay backs off and simply reassigns her and assures her that he'll take those concerns very seriously and look into them. Meanwhile, between the erratic behavior of Skilling and all the questions starting to come from it, in September of 2001, the New York Times runs the following headline, There's Something Rotten in the State of Enron. At the same time, CFO Fasto began selling off his shares of Enron stock to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Now, during this time, the banks have finally had enough of Fasto threatening to pull out of agreements and end deals every time they don't give them a loan, and they appeal to the board of directors of Enron and the CEO that they will refuse to work with Enron so long as Fasto is still a C-level executive. And Lay realizes that they need the infusion of loans and capital coming from the banks in order to keep this scam going. So he does the obvious thing, and he fires uh, Fasto. Now, interestingly enough, during this time, an anonymous employee leaks to both the press and to the SEC that Fasto had been selling off his Enron stock around the same time that Skilling had begun to sell it off. Lay fires Fasto. He appoints Jeff McMahon as the new CFO in October of 2001 and directs him to find some way of solving whatever the problem is here and figuring out just how much trouble they're actually in. McMahon starts looking around at the company's finances and discovers all sorts of very serious issues. Evidently, Fasto had no system for tracking the company's debt obligations and simply moved things to a SPE, a special purpose unit, whenever or, uh, entity, whenever the debt was acquired. And then when the notes came due, he'd simply go get a loan or issue bonds to cover it. And then funneled the new debt to a new SPE, which is why they had over a thousand of the bastards to begin with. Effectively, Enron had a shit ton of debt obligations with all the banks still refusing to give them loans. Their only option now was to issue bonds. But with all the rumors and abrupt behavior happening, the credit agencies dropped Enron's credit down to junk status. So no one was going to buy any bonds that they did issue. Well, this meant the only option to keep the company going was to use cash in hand, the actual money that they made from their legitimate business dealings. But the problem was... And a final insult, because of the mark-to-market accounting, the amount of cash they had on hand was grossly overstated. Without being able to issue bonds or get loans, it turns out Enron had almost no actual cash on hand. The company was effectively completely insolvent. In an attempt to give creditors confidence that they were fixing things internally, 
Ken Lay decided to restate their financial statements in working with Arthur Anderson, figuring maybe if they showed they were correcting their financial statements and they were doing due diligence, that would make everyone feel better. From 1997 to 2000, they reduced their earnings and restatements by $613 million. Now, this is a company that claimed to have a billion dollars a year in revenue. That's a pretty big thing to chop off over a couple of years. They also increased their liabilities by $628 million and then reduced the overall equity by $1.2 billion. Strangely, <clears throat> the numbers and the directions that they're going didn't seem to give the stock market a whole lot of warm and fuzzy feelings about the state of Enron. Now the investors were full-on demanding a deeper investigation of the company's finances, and the stock prices were plummeting. Ken pulls a Hail Mary and depletes his last lines of credit and does a $3.3 billion stock buyback, hoping to shore up the company's position as best he can. And then the worst possible news happens. In November of 2001, only a matter of months after this debacle started, the SEC announced it was starting a formal investigation into Enron's conduct. The company was effectively out of money, having done this multi-billion dollar stock buyback to virtually no effect, and now bills were coming due. The only way to keep payroll running and the lights on was to get an emergency angel loan from another company. Dinegy, on November 2nd, gave Enron a $1 billion loan in exchange for them turning over control of several of their actually profitable pipelines. It was effectively a hostage situation, but Enron didn't have a choice. There was nothing in the treasury, so they had to. At this point, their stock, which had been at $90.50 a share, had hit a low of $7 per share. And at this point, Dinergy offered to buy Enron outright for $8 billion, since clearly they were on the verge of folding. Buying Enron, the seventh largest company in America, for $8 billion was a fucking insult. But even Ken knew that was as good a deal as it was going to get. He tries to push for the deal as quickly as possible. But Enron, even with a billion-dollar cash infusion, is literally hemorrhaging money from every orifice it has. He starts trying to desperately sell $9 billion in underperforming assets and finally is forced to admit in a press conference that Enron's debt payments are vastly in excess of its available cash. Meanwhile, during due diligence, the board of directors at Energy gets rather nervous. After all, there's a whole lot about Enron's financial state they just don't know. And while $8 billion might be a good price for Enron if everything they've seen so far is true, what if there's still more to it that hasn't been uncovered? Well, the CEO initially thought that that wasn't the case. So they were going to proceed with the deal. That being said, things get worse. Late October, the SEC announced after doing initial investigations of both Arthur Anderson and Enron that they were formally filing criminal fraud charges against Enron and their accountants, Arthur Anderson. Instantly, the board of directors at Energy decides they don't want any part of this, and they bail out of the deal. Enron, realizing that they are completely and totally fucked, on December 1st, 2001, fires for, files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the largest bankruptcy in the world at that time. Enron stock plummets from 6 to $7 a share to $0.50 cents a share, and thousands of employees are instantly laid off. Entire life savings, bank accounts, and retirement plans are completely worthless unless you sold six months ago. Now, the management at Arthur Anderson, they realize that they're in a full-on panic. The initial inquiries are now turning into criminal charges, and the partners realize that they have done a lot of things and said a lot of things that are absolutely and totally negligent if this goes before the SEC. And they're a big auditing company. Their entire business relies on them being trustworthy and upright, and they know that if certain things get seen, they're absolutely screwed. The partners at Arthur Anderson authorize over 30,000 emails to be deleted and more than a ton of documents shredded in the Houston office. So many documents were being shredded at the Houston office, they literally had to bring three shredding trucks to the office from a company called Shreddit, whose motto was literally, your secrets are safe with us. And by the way, if you're a, if you're a federal prosecutor, in Houston, and you need a couple of quick wins to make your career, maybe just follow around a document shredding truck that says your secrets are safe with us, and then investigate any business they pull up in front of. You can have that one for free. You're welcome. 
Needless to say, Arthur Anderson was convicted of fraud and obstruction of justice. Uh, now, that ruling was later overturned on a technicality. The damage was done. During the intervening time that it was in the court system, clients were dropping them like flies. Of the 28 or so thousand employees of Arthur Anderson, by the time the dust settled in 2005, there were only 200 left. The entire company completely collapsed and was forbidden from calling themselves accountants, uh, having any sort of CPA work done, or even doing any level of auditing or accounting work publicly. Effectively, this lawsuit completely imploded the company. So in 2005, one of the five largest and most prestigious accounting firms in the world shut their doors over the Enron scandal. Meanwhile, Enron was liquidated for peanuts on the dollar, and it was discovered the company's debt totaled over $70 billion. Lay, Skilling, and Fasto were brought up on criminal charges and even had to testify before Congress over their conduct. Now, Lay was found guilty of 10 counts of fraud, 6 counts of conspiracy, and 4 counts of making false statements. Although, conveniently, he died of a sudden and unexpected heart attack while vacationing in Colorado just before sentencing. Skilling wasn't so lucky. He was found guilty of conspiracy, insider trading, making false official statements, and securities fraud. He was sentenced to 24 years in prison and $45 million in fines. Now, he was released from prison in 2019, and in June of 2020, he was attempting to fundraise for the launch of an online oil and gas trading platform named Vault LLC, which he did in fact launch in Texas in August of 2021, <clears throat> although by August 2022, the company was listed as defunct with the Texas Secretary of State. Interesting. Now, Fasto, on the other hand, took a plea deal and agreed to turn state's witness for a mere 10 years in prison and $23.8 million in fines. He received an even further reduced sentence because of the level in which he cooperated and how happily he was willing to be a snitch, and he only served six years instead. After getting out, he worked as a document clerk for a local Houston law firm and would go on to work the public speaking circuits talking about, of all things, business ethics. Obviously, the market was in shock and turmoil naturally. Congress passed a comprehensive set of reporting and disclosure reforms called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, affectionately known today as SOX. Similarly, between 2002 and 2006, Canada, Germany, uh, South Africa, the Netherlands, France, Australia, India, Japan, and Turkey all passed their own version of SOX, which has given us the regulatory environment that we all have to fucking live in today. Thank you, Enron. <sighs> Aside from that, you have thousands of employees that lost their jobs, thousands of investors that lost their money, and thousands of retirees who lost everything they held there. It was an absolute debacle on an epic level. And that, my friends, in a nutshell, is the story of Enron, one of the biggest scandals in the energy sector and one that's even from living memory. That's all we got for tonight. This is Jordan Driscoll reminding you to tell your special purpose entities that you love them tonight. See you on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.